You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome intro. to the Gravity... Yep. Intro? Intro to... This is... Uh, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Cod... Yes. Cod... Codpast. Yes. Uh, Cod- I've been doing that a lot more lately. I don't know if it's a sign of cognitive decline, but I'm, <laughs> I've been doing... <laughs> I'm 44. Uh, but I did, you know, I mix up... Uh, mix up consonants. Codpast. <laughs> that one yeah. kind of makes me chuckle. Yeah. Things like that. I do that a lot more uh, than I used to. So I'm just sort of, you know, just embracing my own uh, my own cognitive decline, apparently. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's nothing to joke about, dude. No, I know. I know. I know. It's good. Uh, it's good to um, be with you again, uh, friends, listeners. Uh, we've, we so appreciate your um, participation in our community and your participation in these conversations. You know, um, you know who's not cognitively declining? Who's that? Um, aside from any very stable geniuses you may know in real life, uh, Amy Brown Hughes. Oh yeah, she's definitely not cognitively declining. She may be on the cognitive cognitive incline. Like yeah. she's just she, getting she's more she's and more incredible. Started. She's yeah. just getting started in her uh, cognition. <laughs> well, no, no this interview is great. Yep. Yeah, she's written a book uh, about Christian women in the patristic yeah. era. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's it's like a Baker academic book, so it's not like something that uh, I think a lot of people would hear about or know about. Um, right. Because it's I don't know. Sometimes pastors are just reading whatever's on the bestseller list or uh, whatever. But this book and her uh, writing in this book is compelling and fascinating. Mm-hmm. I had this picture. I, I'll just confess. I had this p- kind of rather pejorative, uh, misogynistic picture of like the early church, like women were sort of. Um, not given any leadership or didn't have any authority or influence or they didn't have a, mm. really a voice. And yeah. of course that happened, right? But uh, sure. Amy's book hel- tells the story of some amazing women, just amazing mm-hmm. women, including the sister to uh, Gregor of Nyssa, who mm-hmm. he calls father. He yeah. calls his sister father for how she teaches him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the person who wrote you know, the Nicene Creed uh, was discipled by his <laughs> sister, uh, yeah. and she tells her story and other stories. I just think it's uh, it's incredible. So yeah. I'm just excited we get to share this interview with you today. Yes, it's uh, it's good stuff. Uh, enjoy it. I don't think we need to announce anything else. Just love that you're uh, with us on this journey, friends. Thanks I'd for like being a, part of what we're doing. I'd like to make a quick announcement. Okay, That's okay. I, I yep. just want to say that I've 
I've went through my 44-year-old brain, and I can't mm-hmm. with confidence endorse your diagnosis of cognitive decline. <laughs> I think you're doing all right, Ben. Oh, thanks. Considering thanks. your that's, considering your that's circumstances. Super, <laughs> super encouraging <laughs> yeah. to hear that despite my circumstances or considering them. Considering. Uh, I'm just I, I don't I'm still yeah. doing all right. Yeah, yeah. I mean you're all right. Yeah. Well, thanks for making that announcement. I appreciate that. Friends, don't hesitate to reach out if you do have any um just, you know, ideas for us, uh people that you think should be on the podcast, questions you have, podcast at gravityleadership.com. We will see you next time. Here we go. Amy Brown Hughes, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. It is lovely to be here. Yes. Uh, I just have to say, we uh, interview a lot of people, and I, I think I can tell a lot about who they are. At least I tell myself I can tell a lot about who they are, based upon what's behind them. And I'll just say, uh, uh, you're associate professor, right, of theology no, at, I'm at assi- Gordon assistant College. Professor. Assistant professor. Assistant, assistant professor. professor. Sorry, assistant mm-hmm. professor. Okay. Uh, Thank you for giving me a premature you... promotion. <laughs> Yeah, it's just going to get better. Today is just going to get better. Um, but like prominently displayed behind you, you know, uh-huh. is the Harry Potter series yeah. right on your oh, yeah. bookshelf. Uh, not only are the, are the books beautiful, but I just started reading that again last night to my 11-year-old because um, we got to the, the third book when he was like six and he got super scared. So we stopped. <laughs> and now I think he, oh, he well, did? the Dementors Ooh. scared him. You know, they're scary the, the, critters. It gets dark. Yeah. It gets done. So anyway, I just want to acknowledge well, that. I do have to say, I've told my students on multiple occasions because I use Harry Potter as an example in, in eschatology uh, that I would love yeah. to teach like a theology of Harry Potter and maybe oh, a yeah. couple other things. It's one of those someday. <laughs> That's really cool. That's well, really Beth, cool. Beth Felker Jones at Wheaton has, you know, she said before that uh, Harry Potter is one of the best theologies of death going. So. <laughs> it, oh. I I believe it. Yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of a joke at our church. Matt Matt and I co-pastor a church together, and um, there's a little bit of a joke that we you know in our preaching we have a connecting story. It's kind of a story that people are generally familiar with, sometimes from a story or a book or a movie, or sometimes from our life. But anyway, oftentimes my connecting stories uh, end up being Harry Potter. It's about sixty eight percent of the uh, time, yeah. 68% yeah, it's, it's of the time, high. Harry Potter is like, this is because pr- it's always perfect. I was like, this is perfect for the text. <laughs> yes. Anyway. So you you teach you teach theology at Gordon College. You also host a podcast on script, co-host it with a number of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's one of it's one of my favorite like geek out podcasts when I don't have eighty five dollars to buy some sort of book that I really want to know about. You guys will interview the mm. author. Um, no. But I, I've, I just want to say, like, I, we had Matthew Bates on a few months ago, and I said this to him too. Uh, but that interview you did with John Bear uh, from the Shota House, I think mm-hmm. I've listened to it three times, Amy. And uh, I know you were excited just by the tone of your voice as you talked to him. And I, I feel mm-hmm. like you were channeling my excitement during that interview. <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't listened to it, we'll put that link in the show notes for that. It was a riveting conversation. Uh, but today, mm-hmm. what we want to chat about is a book you've written, you co-wrote. Uh, called Christian Women in the Patristic World, and you trace the stories of uh, a number of women from like the uh, second through fifth centuries, and about how they were portrayed, their their leadership, their authority, their legacy, etc. And so, I guess my question is, why would a twenty first century pastor or house dad or um, you know children's director, why would we care? about patristic women what what is it that drew you to this project and what is it why does it matter for us mm. representation matters <laughs> yeah. i mean i think think about how often we just talked about using harry potter as a reference right and how often we use examples from scripture and just examples through our lives and examples of people um, in history, for illustrations, for things, for ways that we can, we all need heroes and people to imitate and to understand and to see others who are, that we can be like. I mean, Paul talks says, right, imitate me. So there's a sense in which 
we need to be able to see what we want to be in someone else. Yes. And there are very few for women. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 growing up in the church, I just, I remember it being really stunning. I was reading a book. I can't remember what it was. And I was reading the book and it really put in relief for me. It was a book on, I don't remember what it was, something on like mentoring leadership or something. This was like 20 years ago. And all of the examples that were used were men. And yes. I just thought, and I, I and the author wasn't particular, he wasn't making a statement on like women can't be in leadership. It just so happened that all of the leaders of the, the things he was giving examples of were all men. And I was like, wow, for me, I mean, this is a very personal book for me because I, even coming to be a theologian, that didn't occur to me <laughs> until way late because I had never seen yeah. a, a woman theologian. Um, and I'd seen women biblical scholars. Uh, the chair of the Department of um, Bible Admissions or whatever they're calling it now at ORU uh, was a woman when I was there. But I never had a class until my graduate studies with a woman in theology. I'd never read a book by a woman who's a theologian. And so it just, it didn't even occur to me that that was a possibility. Yeah. So representation matters because if you look back, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about the early church and why it was important. And if you don't think women participated in that and continued to participate in that, we sort of just assume, well, after the canon was closed that, you know, Christians kept doing stuff, but we hear about Augustine. We hear, <laughs> yeah. uh, we don't tend to hear about these others. So yeah, on good. the very basic level, that's what I would yeah. say. So you're telling the stories of women who have been leaders and models for current women today, but also for guys to be like, oh yeah, this isn't just, <laughs> there, are, there are women who have done this for centuries. Yeah. Well, and the point is, is that uh, it's you can't draw a real definitive line between the two. They work together. That's one of my favorite aspects yeah. of this is is how they needed each other. They didn't have this dividing line between men did this kind of thing and women did this kind of thing. I mean, there was some cultural stuff like that, but Christianity had to deal with right off the bat that it was pretty clear that they were supposed to do things differently than they were used to in the Roman empire. So um, wow. they had to, 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 to contend with that and to figure out what to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the surprising mm -hmm. things as I read this book, Amy, was the, the tension that, or maybe, maybe the language that surrounds women and women in authority or leadership today, we hear about local church pastors and we hear about, and, and then there's debates on whether or not women could be local church pastors. We hear uh, words like headship and we hear words like, um, you know, uh, gender roles, things like that. But I'm struck by the fact that none of that really shows up at all in the early church. Like that wasn't the conversation. Those weren't the frames that people were using. And in a sense, like the words that kept coming out as I read were words like, um, I mean, what really stood out to me was uh, martyrdom and uh, like the, the the paragon of virginity. And so I wonder, like, what, what was different uh, in the early in this early church about how people saw authority and gender, and what was valued different then than is valued today. Yeah, really good question. I there's there's kind of two parts to this question because we are all in a context, right? No matter when we live or where we are. And these early Christians were in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had very specific ideas about what women were and what they were for, and they were having their own conversation about this. So underlying some of this, we only address it very briefly in a couple of portions, but there was a whole lot of conversation about uh, laws about marriage and and such and and who gets inheritances and all sorts of things during the few hundred years at the beginning of the Roman Empire. Um, so there was this societal wide conversation about women and and what kind of power they could have with money, what kind of power they could have in their homes, um, because oftentimes women married younger uh, in their uh, like late teens, early twenties, like, you know, 18 to 20 something yeah. and men were often older. So they would often die. And you had these women who had all of this money. And so there were very powerful women 
very powerful women who yeah. supported the arts and who supported a lot of things. And uh, they were not super interested in all of that money being dispersed. And it wasn't necessarily best for society for that to be the case either. There's a really great book that goes into all of this. Um, Peter Brown, the eminent historian, he wrote this book called The Eye of the Needle, uh, Through the Eye of the Needle, and talks about like sort of shifting of money because it was actually, that was where a lot of the power dynamics um, wow. was, was really centered on. And in the church, so that was underlying all of it. So you have a lot of the women we talk about who are incredibly wealthy. And the reason they were incredibly wealthy was because some of these law changes. And so they were faced with the question of what do I do with all this money <laughs> and as a Christian? Because there's a sense in which um, it, they, they associated having all this wealth and having all this luxury and having all this power with being aligned with the world. So a lot of the ways Christian women exercise their authority was in choosing not to participate in the society with all of their money and power, which yeah. is like opposite of what, what we do is we tend to go like, get all the power and stick it in our ears and then I can change the system, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> but they, um, uh, Melania, I think it was Melania the Younger specifically, who was beyond a wealth that we can possibly imagine right now. I mean, maybe Jeff Bezos, but who wants to compare anything to him? So, um, Melania the Younger, sorry. Yeah. So Melania the, the Younger, the Empress actually came to her and says, uh, please don't like, uh, sell all your stuff because if you do, our economy will collapse basically. So Melania oh, wow. is like, Oh, I understand. I'm still doing it. Um, oh, wow. There's a sense of of giving up the hairstyles, the clothes, the all, all the way down to the food, which is where a lot of that aesthetic association yes. stuff comes from, which for us can be very hard to understand. Why were they doing this? And it's because they associated all this stuff with the ways that the poisonous ways that society operated. And they were That's like, no, not going to do it. So in some of the ways, the women oh. in this book giving up power gave them a different kind of power. But then you have later in the book, um, like the empresses yep. who in other ways, like Polcaria, who basically ran the empire. Right. And they're, they're another kind of story because as, as we talk about in the book, the idea of empress, like what did that even mean? Yes. Um, so they took the opportunities that were given to them to, um, expand their own sense of leadership and their own sense of contribution. And pretty much every woman did that in some sense, whether, whether it was the frame of martyrdom, whether it was the frame of I'm a wealthy woman giving up everything for asceticism. Yes. They, whatever package they were given, women, including many that we didn't name in the book, used that opportunity to flourish and to, um, become who they wanted to be and who they understood themselves to be in Christ, um, granted whatever they had, even if they had all these structures around them. And I feel like that is also eminently relatable because <laughs> there's a, you know, how yeah. many of us are in situations where in churches where, as you mentioned, where you might have some practical or theological things that maybe you want to be a pastor and you can't <laughs> yeah, uh, or, or something like that. What does it look like to, and it's a constant negotiation. What does it look like to work within that structure? And, and but at the same time, not submit to that structure. Uh, what does it look like to, when do you leave a structure? Like all of those questions, I feel like these early women help, to they're like people that can come alongside us in those conversations. Yeah. Cause I wish it has changed. I wish mm. it has changed. Yeah. But. They, they, they fill out our imagination for our own habit, unjust systems and structures mm -hmm. where, where maybe you don't get uh, the Jeff Bezos power, but how do you operate in the Jeff Bezos world, uh, with, with authority and with power? Yeah. Um, yeah. and the, you, you mentioned asceticism. I think the other two that come out in story after story is the, uh, the honor or the dignity of virginity, mm -hmm. and the uh, and the and the honor and the dignity and the power of martyrdom, 
Uh, so martyrdom, virginity, and asceticism were sort of like these three themes that kept coming up over and over and over. And I can't think of something more unpalatable to a 21st century American than those <laughs> right. three things, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how un-American dream is asceticism, virginity, and martyrdom? Um, yeah. uh, would, I, I would love it if you could just maybe speak to this virginity piece, because I, I, I've t- in talking with a lot of people in my generation— you know, I'm 43, uh, sort of the Josh Harris generation, mm. uh, who grew up in the purity culture and, um, and, and worked for some people, for many people, they're sort of deconstructing that and, and healing from that. But the early church doesn't have this baggage, it doesn't seem. They may have different baggage. But I wonder if you could help us understand how is a purity or virginity, how did that function differently in the Roman Empire than maybe it does in some of our Christian subcultures? Mm. So this is an area where Christians were innovators, significant innovators. So uh, the whole story of virginity would take me hours to explain. So I'll, I'll sum up. It's <laughs> <Yeah, that's> good. <laughs> Too much time. I'll sum up. Uh, virginity doesn't mean to them what we assume it means now. So when we talk about virginity now, it's abstinence. It's not having sex and such. And that was part of it. But virginity for the early Christians, they understood it as a theological category that was Christological in shape, that in, that virginity was basically the glue that held all of the other virtues together. So they understood virginity in the sense of chastity, where it was, it included the idea of modesty, which was a... Uh, a value in the Roman Empire for women, but it took that idea of modesty and it sort of flipped it on its head and gave it a sense of agency for uh, a different kind of agency for the woman that was that was offered. Because in the Roman Empire, the idea of and of um, of of women virgins was sort of this sense of uh, like like Lucretia, for instance, where she she well she wasn't a virgin, she was married, but because she was raped by someone, right? Like she instead you know, killed herself. And that was a deemed a great honor. And Christians were like, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> so virginity became this place where you could imitate Christ. And it's, it really quickly became a place where women specifically, um, although there were a lot of men who did this too, Gregory of Nyssa wrote, uh, a, um, a treatise on a theological treatise on virginity that was actually directed at men. And there is some distinction in how the West and East approach this. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to the East, Eastern Christians specifically because I think that they have a sort of very fully orbed understanding of virginity as a place of exercising virtue. Yes. So it was both, it was a, it was like a, you became a virgin or at, like, which was like an office in the church. <laughs> you became a virgin because it's not because you were holier than thou or because you were wearing some sort of ring and saying, look at me, I'm pure. It was, it was because you recognized that you were weak and you wanted to serve Christ your entire life and you wanted to imitate Christ. And um, you had two choices as a woman in Roman society. You, you were married or you were not yet married. Yes. <laughs> so right. virginity was a... It was uh, agency was agency. And it was associated also with widows. Like there's a lot of conversation about widows because uh-huh. there was a lot of widows in the Roman empire. Um, but widows could also fall, also fell into this category, especially early on and could become like consecrated virgins, even though oh. they were always virgins, but they could be a part of that to, for the yeah. rest of their lives. So it was a place of, it was, it was another example of women who are seeing an opportunity and kind of making it a thing because very quickly the early church figured out that they had to hierarchize the church in order to have structure and women while they were very active found their their roles getting more and more constricted and and the office of virgin if i can call it that became a space where they could control that environment which is why you have all these women that we talk about in the book who had um like uh convents in their homes um, that they would create these spaces where, like, where Jerome would come to Marcella. <laughs> yeah. Because she wasn't at a church. She wasn't, you know, she didn't have an office somewhere. Like, that was her home. She had set up a space. Polcaria does the same thing as Empress. And they all do this. And it becomes a space where they, um, 
have a sense of, of power that, but they understand themselves as living into like living a Christ shaped life yeah. um, and Christ being the one who holds all virtues together. Um, this becomes a place where they freely choose uh, this role, which as a side benefit for some included not having to get married to somebody you didn't want to get married to. Who was 20 years older than you and a creep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so and, and you mentioned martyrdom and I'll, I'll just quickly yeah. say this because I think we use the term martyr, like we throw it around all over the place. And I'm especially in Christianity, I'm deeply concerned about that. Martyrdom in the early, in the early church was a very specific thing. Um, and the early church had to figure out very, they had to discuss and figure out what actually categorized a martyr because you couldn't, it, it, it couldn't be suicide. <laughs> Um, and it also couldn't be like, it had to be sort of, it had to be an imitation of Christ in submitting to an evil unjust system, but yeah. yet holding on to who Christ was and not letting that go. And I think the ways that sometimes that's how Christians understood it. Of course you can have martyrs from other sort of structures, but um, they asceticism became the way uh, that Christians held on to the witness of the martyrs because hmm. when they weren't being persecuted anymore in this, in the same way they were uh, prior to Constantine, asceticism became a way to hold on to that tradition and to do what Paul says, like by dying daily uh, yes. and imitating Christ. So that's the connection between those two things. And I understand that those things are not, how we value the world, but I would say that maybe we could do with a little bit more understanding that we can embody the virtues. <laughs> yeah, right. And that those things actually feed into our Christianity and and we can be more like the the more we imitate Christ, the more we embody um, the virtue of humility, the more we embody mm -hmm. the virtue of of chastity and patience and all these different things. So it might not be the same structure that they had, but I think that it, we can get really sort of obsessed with the packaging. Yeah. More interested. They were more interested in the telos in where Ooh. it was going. Yes. Who they were becoming. Yes. Who they were transforming into. And this was the way that they saw this was an avenue for doing that. So what are our avenues today? Uh, would be my question. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Ben, what are you noticing? Yeah, I guess I'm just noticing a lot of, this is really helpful. Um, I think, because, like you said at the beginning, Amy, the um, uh, representation matters, right? But it also it also matters, like that representation matters because it's, it, it's important to know what these women were doing when they were doing what they were doing. You know what I mean? Like what the telos is here. They weren't just sort of meekly uh, sort of submitting to some expectation that culture had put on them that you're supposed to do this and this and this. This was actually their way of of grabbing uh, agency and sort of inhabiting their authority in Christ um, and saying, I'm I'm actually going to, you know, despite what culture says about who I can and can't be and what I can and can't do, I'm going to take authority in my body by embracing these practices so that I become a certain kind of person, and there's a there's a real power in that because that's that's th their witness is that the empire can't take that away. You mm -hmm. know, the worst the empire can do is kill you, which actually helps me. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that. That's kind of their their attitude towards it. So, mm. so well, yeah. At, one of my favorite stories um, from that exemplifies this mm -hmm. is very early on where Eusebius. Mm -hmm. um, in his church history includes the story of Blandina, the slave girl yes. who was among the martyrs in the, um, the martyrs of Lyon and Vienne very early, yeah. uh, you know, in the, in the second century and yeah. her having several strikes against her being a slave and a, and a girl, a young woman, <laughs> mm -hmm. she's basically a, a, a flea um, yeah. and had no personhood. Yeah. And yet there she was, uh, yeah. at every turn, the, the soldiers couldn't hurt, couldn't kill her. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and then she, when they hung her up on a pole, she was in the shape of a cross and the, and the text says that everyone looked upon her and saw her as Christ, yeah. which is a very important distinction. Like they still saw Blandina, 
Yes. But they saw her as Christ and she yeah. became a witness in that moment. And what a stunning thing, because I, I don't think this should be an excuse. Like we shouldn't be like, oh, it's we we're, we're good to keep the unjust system around so that we can have murders. Of course, we don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> the idea would be that we not have that at all. And, yeah. and even with this virginity piece, I mentioned I focus on the East because in the West, well, both sides, but really in the West, there becomes a real constricting of how virgins could operate, yeah. what they could look like and what they could dress. And it it, it became a, a space where that agency wasn't allowed to flourish as it could have. So yeah. it wasn't just like the Christians versus the empire. The women were also contending with how um, their agency was being limited or or cultivated within yeah. the church within the church yeah yeah so it's really good that we've sorted that out and that doesn't happen anymore so that's really good <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by gravity leadership academy our 10-month online training intensive for christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in god's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture in Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you, so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission, and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy. All right, I have a few more questions, but first, something you do on your podcast, and I want to pay homage to this, is we want to do a speed round. Some quick fire questions that you, Amy, you haven't heard these before. Just give us your your blink, your five-second blink. Um, this first one isn't fair, but I'm going to do it anyway. Were <laughs> there women priests in some early churches? Probably. If you weren't uh, an assistant professor, what would you be doing? Oh, man. Uh Trying to be an assistant professor. <laughs> uh, favorite book that you've read in the last five years? Oh, oh any kind of book? Like any, academic, kind, any, kind, any of kind of book. Kind of book. Mm. Oh, gosh. I can't even think of the books I've read recently. You know, I really enjoy, like, fiction-wise, I really enjoy Pierce Brown's series, his, like, Red Rising series. Where it's like the, it's the Roman Empire in space. Oh, wow. All right. I'm writing that down. Okay. Yeah. Something people would be surprised to find out about you as a, somebody who's written a book about a uh, patristic woman. Um, something that's a surprise about me. Uh, well, I think something we mentioned early on before we hit record is that I used to teach improv. <laughs> yes, that was surprising. I was surprised. And that I originally wanted to be an English teacher. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, church fathers or modern scholarship? You have to pick one. Which do you read? Probably church fathers, unless you're talking about somebody like Sarah Coakley or James Cone. Oh, gosh. <laughs> we, we may be connected on a deep subterranean level here. This is great. Uh, sweet or savory? Sweet. Um, quarantine or rumspringa? <laughs> well, I'm a bit of a hermit. I actually chose the office at Gordon. They gave me a choice of window office or the one that was in the dark, and I chose the one in the dark. So I <laughs> quarantine. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing that. I, I want to return to this first question I asked you in the speed round about women priests. You know, I um, I think correct me if I'm wrong. I read an article that came out after your book about a new painting or fresco that had been revealed in, in Rome that seemed to show some people think it's the mother of Jesus, Mary as a priest. Um, yeah, blessing the Eucharist and you know. yeah. yeah. What is, uh, so this is a big uh, topic in our neck of the woods. I mean, we're um, in a denomination that um, has some churches that ordain women, some that don't. And all of them, uh, the people that don't tie it, tie it to the early church, right? That we've never ordained priests as women, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, like, what have you discovered about the plural? I think there's some diversity here, and I'd love it if 
<laughs> what have you discovered about that? What have you learned about that? So I think it's really interesting, first of all, that any denomination would use this as an as a factor. Okay. Maybe I'll set that off to the side. <laughs> yes, it is confusing. To, it's confusing to us as well. <laughs> yeah, it's like taking a random passage of scripture and saying, yeah, it's like proof texting history. Um, so, okay, I, I think one thing's important is the our idea of priest versus what we're talking about in the early church, because I think we tend to map mm-hmm. our idea of priest onto the early church. And so it's like asking the question of, of whether Phoebe or these other women who led, led churches in the New Testament, were they priests? Like, it's like, it's like that. It's almost like, the, like a categorical error. Like, well, they had a house, like they ran a church in their home. So they preached and they did all these things. Would you call them a priest? Well, they surely had the Lord's Supper and the Eucharist in their home, whatever that looked like at the time. So I think there's a contextual error here. So, so having frescoes of women presiding over the Eucharist, I mean, there's there was some debate about this in the early church, right? Because there was the um, the new prophecy, also known as the Montanus, that drove some people crazy because uh, the a couple of the women who were the prophetesses, um, they were doing some uh, women were baptizing. Oh, okay. And this was really uh, troubling to some people. Um, and they were sort of later declared as heretics. But at the same time, the church, it, the church was kind of up in the air about what to do with them. <laughs> so yeah. this was a division at the time as well. And I think... Um, I think it's really hard to say that if that women weren't performing all of this stuff, cause they were, but it was, the debate was very similar then as well. So yeah. to say that there weren't, or there were is, is like, of course there were yeah. um, now, whether it was embraced as sort of general church practice. No. Um, because misogyny has always been around. So <laughs> yeah. um, it depended on the region and, you know, so yes, I, it, like the fresco that has a woman that I'm like, well, f- yeah, sure. Um, but it mat- it almost matters what the church, what pathway the church ended up choosing into. They chose against this. Right. Um, and that to me, I don't think it's, it's not, we have to look at this and go, okay, why did that happen? Um, I'm more interested in like, if we get stuck in the origins question, it's almost like we avoid the question that is the actual one we should be asking is why did they choose the way that they did and how, and obviously that was a problematic choice from my perspective. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What would you say? Why, wh- yeah. What, what's the, what's the 60 second on why they chose the way they did? You mentioned misogyny. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that it, it, they chose the way they did largely because what do you do when you have a fledgling organization that's spread all over the place and you have to have some consistency. You have churches who are baptizing in the name of Jesus. You have churches who are saying that the Holy Spirit's not fully God. You have, I mean, you have all this stuff everywhere. So it wasn't just about women. It was also about all the things. How do we have a church? They were passing around the Didache. They were trying to say, okay, this is how you embrace a prophet. This is how you not like, because churches were all over the place doing all sorts of things. They were passing around different letters and, and some were reading Matthew, Mark and Luke and the others weren't. And so they were trying, they had to have some kind of organizational structure. So Cyprian is a, uh, is a good example of this, of Carthage, where he is one of the early church people who were like, okay, we need to establish some structure. And and what do you do? You look at what you got and then go, okay, what around me helps me to understand structure. It's like what we're doing today as a church where we look at successful businesses and then we model our churches after that. Uh, and we yeah. have boards of trustees instead of elders. Yes. <laughs> Same idea. They looked at the Roman empire and women had no place in the Roman empire. Yeah. In their structure and their leadership structure. So you look at what you know and then you modify it in a way that you think works and then you should try to do that. So the church was always this never quite fit, um, but it's what they had. Yeah. So, yeah, that's good. That's good. Maybe, maybe uh, diving into one small um, story here before we close. I, I had heard about Macrina. 
mm. you know, the older sister of Gregory. But I had never read her story until I read your book. And uh, sh- she's my favorite. Like oh, she's, she is down. such a baller. Uh, you, you entitle, <laughs> you entitle the chapter Macrina, the ascetic entrepreneur, maybe just to give a flavor, a bit of, of your book. Cause there's so many amazing stories in this book. Could you just tell us a little bit about her story? Yeah. So Macarena was, uh, one of the, the second oldest of, uh, a large family in Cappadocia, which is now modern day Turkey. And they're, uh, father died when, and, and so they, so they had a, a mom that was running the family and she, Amelia, her mom was very upset about, you know, just the loss of her husband and everything. And so Macarena pretty early on emerged as a leader in the family because of, of grief, because her, for whatever reason, uh, Amelia struggled in some ways and needed help. And so Macarena took over in a lot of ways, running the household um, and not just running the household, like in the, because they were a wealthy family. So they had a lot of land, they had, um, you know, slaves, they had all sorts of people that were part of this, um, this uh, structure of an estate. And Amelia took over that aspect of it. She also took over the schooling aspect of it um, and tutored her brothers and really became sort of the center point of this family. And as she grew, she chose into um, uh, becoming an, uh, a person who was an ascetic. <laughs> uh, but at the time it was, there was not a whole lot of models for what that looked like. So she kind of transformed their home into this sort of place and emancipated all the slaves in the house, which not something others did. Um, So you'll find actually the most full throated defense of, of how slavery is an evil actually comes from Gregory of Nyssa and it has to, her brother. Yeah. Her brother. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how basically Christians shouldn't own people. (laughs) basic, but, uh, but this is where you get this. And it's because their family was part, she was the core of how this family lived into what it meant to be, um, like to be Christian (laughs) in so many ways. And she set up this whole structure in their home where other women joined the the slaves could be a part of it. She baked bread. She, she did all the things a Roman matron probably shouldn't do. She also got out of being engaged to a guy by saying, well, I'm engaged to Jesus. So (laughs) you did that first, but actually she did. (laughs) Um, And, and then her, her Gregory of Nyssa wrote about her life and uh, in the life of Macarena. It's widely available on the internet. You can go read it. And then the companion piece of On the Soul and the Resurrection, which there were lots of On the Souls that it was a philosophical structure of a piece that, you know, Plato wrote one, lots of yeah. people wrote them. And he wrote one and cast Macarena as Socrates and himself as the questioner who didn't understand anything and asked her questions. And so it really demonstrates who he saw her to be in his life. And some of the most, the life of Macarena is one of the most touching, beautiful homages to a sibling um, you could ever read. And, And I think that her diving into study, her diving into mentoring women, her diving into challenging her brothers and no holds barred saying, you know, telling her brother Basil that, you know, Hey bro, (laughs) you've got some power here. What's your problem? Yeah. She, she, he didn't want to be Bishop and she was like, do it. Right. Is it, wasn't that the story? Step up to the plate, buddy. yeah. 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 And, and there was a, she was just, um, and we we know her through Gregory, so obviously yeah. Macarena didn't write anything herself. But it's one of the it's one of the pieces that we look at and go, why would Gregory have written something if it wasn't somehow based in reality in this way? And yeah. so we we see her through Gregory's eyes, but in a lot of ways, I think that that's more telling than if she had written it herself. Yes, about I mean, how others did her. Yeah, so you know the Cappadocian fathers are often referred to as like the fathers of orthodoxy, right? Because of their, their mm-hmm. role in the creeds. And it, it feels like she's the the mother to the fathers of orthodoxy. Like, you know, just as the same way Mary is the apostle to the apostles. And there's a sense in which 
uh, it was a bit striking to me that she was kind of like the Socrates meets Jesus meets like uh, William Wallace kind of figure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she was, and, and even Gregory referred to her as a father, um, mm-hmm. which, which was striking to me that he had no qualms with calling a woman father because of the role that she played in his life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just powerful. Yeah, she's she's quite something, and I I, I think that her story. I, I'd like one of the things I'd like to work on in the future is a book that is dedicated to her, um, talking about her and her story uh, more specifically. There's some stuff some stuff out there, but I'd like to to spend more time with her. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. maybe as we close, are, is that what you're working on now, or do you have other things that you're uh, spending time doing? Uh, no, I'm, I'm well, sort of, I have some work for my dissertation that I'm trying to get into a book, but you know, uh, worldwide <laughs> pandemic has thrown some of that into disarray. Um, I'm also doing some new research and I'm, I'm very fascinated on the soul and the resurrection is a good example of a dialogue in early Christianity. I find it very fascinating that early Christians used, uh, philosophical dialogue, yeah. um, as a, as a way to do theology. And there's been a lot of books written on dialogue and how Christians used it and how philosophers used it, but I haven't really found much just looking at these dialogues for them as theological method. Hmm. And I'm, I'm used to like, if I ask my students, what is theology, you know, they'll point to a book on my shelf and go, you know, they, what they mean is a big book that a dude wrote, you know, <laughs> and, and that's not because it's always a dude. Um, yeah. and, and so that to me, isn't theology. Theology is what happens in between. Yes. Christians. It, it's the church constantly in dynamic and it's not just conversation. We're not just having chats, like dialogue. No. As I understood it. It was supposed to go somewhere. Yeah. It, you had the idea was to understand what courage was by the end of the dialogue. Yes. And I, so I think it's the same is true with these Christians, like these, these spaces where they come together in order to understand something um, to me is the, is the church is, you know, being the church with the Holy spirit um, coming to understand something of who God is. And so I'm, I'm, mm. I'm beginning some work on, I've done some articles and presentations and such on this, but I want to do a book on that. So yeah. that's, the- that sounds great. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I we yeah. hear from people, I'm sure you hear from people too, who listen to your dialogues on your podcast and it's, mm-hmm. it's actually, they're, they're benefiting more than if they just read uh, a straight didactic sort of presentation. Well, and I base this a lot off of in mm. graduate school. One of the things we did, which was really wonderful, I we started this while I was there, which uh, we had these symposiums where we'd bring in probably 10 to 12 scholars on a topic and they'd all bring papers, but most of it was them just talking between themselves on topics, uh, like after the papers. So it wasn't just, you have 10 minutes for questions, like at an academic conference, it was like you presented a paper and then it was an hour to talk about it. And as a graduate student, there was several of us graduate students who would just sit in the room and listen. And we often talked about how awesome it was to see our professors talking to each other Mm -hmm. or talking to other professors and how much we learned by that. And I thought, yeah, why don't we do that? Yes. <laughs> right. That's relatively obvious. Um, and also I think that it helps us not be in an echo chamber. Yeah. Where, yeah. cause I know a lot of people will read all of one pastor's books, right? And they yeah. think they're learning about theology and that pastor might have a lot to say that is really wonderful, but maybe there's someone who has a really strong critique to that pastor that you should also be listening to at the same time, yeah, right. but, but it's, we can't, because we're not listening to it as a, as, as a conversation, mm-hmm. we aren't necessarily getting the benefits from yeah. that. So I, I'd like to open a, I'd like to open a dialogue uh, about how we might actually structure our theological exploration differently. Yeah. And I've been, there are ways that I actually do this in my classes um, to, um, anticipate some of that. Hmm. Um, so I've, I've been doing practical, <laughs> like practical yeah. theology, pedagogy, pedagogy 
in, 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 in thinking about how it might actually look in practice. Yeah. The yeah, ancients right. may, the ancients may have something to teach us about pedagogy. Mm, I, right. I talked to, um, I was at a conference last year and talking to Warren Smith from Duke and, and he and I have a lot of, um, similar, he loves Macarena too and Gregory. And, and I was telling him about some of my work with dialogue cause I did a paper there and he, we were talking about it and he said, you know, I actually presented to a, an academic journal once if they, you know, that I wanted to do a theological dialogue and they turned me down <laughs> because we just don't do this. And it, we, that's not yeah. a structure we use anymore, but early Christians did it all the time. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I actually yeah. think the medium of podcasts is bringing back some of that. And so I appreciate you being on our podcast today, sharing uh, all your research, your wealth of knowledge, and just your effervescent personality with us. It's just wonderful Aww. to be with you. Um, how can people connect with you if they want to uh, out in the wide world of the virtuals? <laughs> well, I'm on Twitter. So you can come find me, Amy Brown Hughes, on Twitter. Um, okay. I could, there's a lot of theologians on Twitter we're having. We always have fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and also on script, of course. Uh, yes. Those are the- places where you can find me. Uh, I'm not a blogger. I, I, uh, that gives me hives to like, think I have to write all the time. <laughs> That's why we started this podcast. Cause I was tired of writing. Uh, oh Amy, thanks for being with us today. Uh, happy quarantine. And, uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. It was a pleasure being with y'all. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the gravity leadership podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.